We are uh, obviously continuing through the book of Acts. Um, We're nearing the finish line. We're going to take Acts all the way up into Resurrection Sunday and uh, excited about that. And just exciting week by week as I I hope that you are giving yourself the time to reflect upon each week because really it's every week is a building block. It's placing one upon or next to the other and we're building in a direction to at the end we'll have something that is sure and sturdy and lasting and um, with a deep foundation, et cetera, et cetera. So I've been reflecting, I'm sorry, I'm a little excitable this morning, so it might come across just in, in how I'm communicating. Um, I've been reflecting myself on what God is doing and uh, obviously feel the great privilege of having the time to do so throughout the week from week on from one to the next. And um, this week, there is a, a really important um, uh, balance against what we heard last week. So last week, Rick talked about, he, he used the term risky faith. I'm gonna use that again. He just mentioned, mentioned it once, but I'm gonna apply that theme, if you will, to last week's teaching. And the reason that I felt like that was important is because what he brought was the message of the gospel in the one sense. But he did so in light of Christ's finished work and how the enemy has been bound and is only at work with as much as the Lord will allow him to be at work within our present circumstances. And the reason that that is important as a matter of faith and gospel proclamation is because when we realize that great place of victory from which we proclaim the gospel within that should release us in a sense of boldness, in a sense of that they will listen, as Charlie said and as Rick said last week, they will listen. We don't know what God will do in the hearts of men and women from one proclamation to the next, but we know that they will hear and we have great confidence in knowing that it will bear good fruit and that as we sow the seed, as the sower in the parable that was referred to last week, As we sow that seed, that seed goes where it wills and God does with it as he wishes. But Christ is at work. And because he's at work, we have great faith. And our call is just to boldly proclaim. And that's what we've been saying week in and week out and week in and week out. But between this last week and and this week, I feel like there's a really important balance that they actually hold to each other. And I want to be careful how I say this, but in a sense, I felt like to say that last week is incomplete on its own, on the one hand could be misconstrued, but on the other hand, I felt like it was a good representation of what I want to say in that last week, it's not just about the gospel proclamation. While it is, it isn't in the sense of there is an external visible witness that attests to the veracity of our words. In other words, there's continuity between our words and our actions. And so this morning, I wanna look at the book of Acts and I wanna talk about the integrity of our witness before a watching world. And sometimes, depending on what, um, how you've grown up in the faith, if at all, there's an overemphasis of one over the other. It's either we must speak of what is true, which again, don't hear what I'm not, hear, what I'm not saying, 
We must speak what is true, but not at the cost of discontinuity, if if that's a word, between our words and our actions. And it can't just be our life as a living witness without any verbal gospel proclamation. It's both and. And the both are important. And I feel as though, and this is where I'm gonna get quickly this morning, is that there's a balance. There's a middle, and I'm gonna use the term the radical middle, not the political radical middle, but the Christian, the spiritual radical middle that we exist within as believers. And I'm jumping way ahead at this point. But I wanna use Acts, and I wanna show you the importance that Acts actually places on this idea of integrity in our witness. And when I I say witness this morning, I mean the visual. I'm gonna use the word the testimony to testify as our verbal and our witness as our visual. Does that make sense? Are we following me? Put your hand up if you're with me. (laughs) Okay, awesome. So again, we're in the theme of the power and the proclamation through the book of Acts. The power of the spirit of God as the church proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're studying through Acts with this idea of the power and the proclamation. Turn with me to Acts chapter 18. I want to look at four different passages, and this is just to give us an idea. Acts chapter 18. Verse 12. We're going to look at three or four texts, just a few verses in each. So we'll do a bunch of turning, but they should be sequential in terms of how we find them through the book of Acts. So Acts chapter 18, uh, verse 12, and it says this, But Gallio was proconsul of Achaia. The Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. Acts 23, move forward five chapters to Acts 23, verse 29. We're talking about the integrity of the witness. Acts 23, verse 29 Again, this is Paul before a ruler. Actually, we'll start in 28. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, of course, speaking of Paul, I brought him down to their council. Verse 29, I found that he was being accused about questions of their law again, but charged with nothing, deserving death or imprisonment. Now forward to Acts 25. We're kind of following Paul very quickly on his journey towards Rome Acts 25, verse 18. When the accuser stood up once again, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. And then lastly, let's look at Acts 26. Verse 31, I'll start in verse 30. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice, who was the governor's, that was the king's sister, and those who were sitting with them, 
And when they had withdrawn, just with themselves, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And then lastly, Acts 28, verse 21. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you. This is Paul now in Rome. We've received no letters about you from Judea. And none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. So these were just some quick references in regards to, we have Paul And it's Paul's journey, and as was said last week, I was so struck by the fact that Paul's aim was to get before Caesar. And when you look at that lens, like that was Paul's, for at that time, Rome was like the pinnacle of authority, of rule, of power, of economics. It stood for the highest mountain, if you will, that Paul could reach to proclaim the gospel. And so for Paul, he actually chose to appeal to Caesar and remain in chains. He chose to remain in chains, knowing that that was his one way that he could see to get before Caesar. And so what we just looked at in each of these matters, in 18, he's standing before Gallio, a chief judicial officer. And each time, the person that he's brought before, whom is saying like, I found nothing wrong with this man. Other than what you say to be true of what he's saying, bring disruption and disagreeing with your laws, there's no evidence of his life being you know, worthy of punishment, death, of course. And so he's brought before Gallio, the chief judicial officer. Then in Acts 23, it's, it's, it's Felix who's speaking, the governor of Caesarea. And then in 25, it's Festus and Agrippa. In 26, it's the king Agrippa. And it's on and on, and it's just each time it's ratcheting up someone in power, and it's going up to the next guy, and each time they're just going, I, I don't know what you're, what you're talking about. And much to the chagrin of the religious leaders, was it not? Each time they go, we're going to get him this time. We're going to get him this time. But Paul's life was above reproach. And we know that between what he spoke and what he did, there was incredible intent and there was incredible continuity and integrity of Paul's life. The Jewish leaders, of course, were trying to suppress the message of Jesus Christ in in his resurrection. But Paul was determined to proclaim the gospel And it necessitated that he both remain in chains, but also remain under great scrutiny to get before Caesar, as I said. But not only would standing before Caesar present the largest opportunity to preach the message of the gospel, but so too would his journey there, and that's important, would his journey there also allow the greatest amount of gospel exposure? So it wasn't just Rome for Paul, but it was also each opportunity in every circumstance that presented a chance for the gospel to be exemplified and to testify to, whether it was through his actions and his words. Much like the life of Jesus Christ, was it not? Jesus Christ, knowing that the cross was his aim, there was great continuity between, of course, what he said and what he did, and what he did testified to what he said was true. So too should that be in our life. So Paul saw his life as an opportunity to both testify and to witness the verbal and the visual. The verbal and the visual. There's a balance and it's important. 
every relationship, every circumstance within work, your marriage, your parenting, if you're an employer or an employee, every circumstance is an opportunity to visually testify to the gospel. Now, again, it's not the gospel in and of itself, and it cannot take the place of the verbal testimony, but it has great importance in terms of how people see and how people respond. The veracity of our testimony is directly affected by the purity of our witness. Can you agree with that statement? You know what I mean by that? The truthfulness, as I've said already, the truthfulness of our testimony is attested to, it's, it's found to be true by the actions that we have, the way that we live our life. But whether it's the way that I love my wife, the way I parent my children, the way I, I love my friends and care for my friends, the type of employee that I am before my employer, do I work with integrity? Am I looking to take a few minutes off of my clock every day because I really want to get home and get into my sweats and watch Netflix? Or do I honor my commitment to my employer? These small things, these little things, have a profound effect on the watching world, right? On the watching world. For those who are parents, I would guess that if, if I were to ask you, you would tell me that you love your child more than, more than anything else in the world. We would all say that, perhaps even more than yourself. And of course, as a, as a fellow parent, I would say that that's true. I love my children more than anything. However, if you were to say that to me, but then always speak harsh to your children, to not teach them the things that they need to know, to not discipline them, to not correct them, to not train them, to not touch them, to hug them, to kiss them, to affirm them verbally, if the tenor of your parenting was contrary to what you said to me of how you love them to be the most, how powerful are your actions towards the words that you say? and discrediting and disproving in a sense, right? Is that not possibly true? So if we speak to the others as those who don't know that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, if we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ as him being the only hope as we sung this morning, yet we don't have faith in our own present circumstances, then we lack integrity in our witness. If we preach Christ's death as being the foundation of freedom, yet give ourselves every day to the same cycle of sin, day in and day out and week in and week out, then the integrity of our witness is compromised. There's not continuity in what we say we believe and what we do. If we speak of the totality of Christ giving all of himself for us, every ounce, and yet withhold from him a part of our talent or our treasure or our time, then we're discrediting our witness. Can you agree with me on that? And this is for me and for all of us. This isn't just me out here saying, doggone it, get your stuff together. And I'm not saying there's perfection. I'm talking about the tenor, right? We all make mistakes. We all don't parent right. We all don't love our children right. 100% of the time, I'm talking about the overarching tenor of our life. 
Turn with me to Paul, to Paul, to Paul chapter 20. Find that in your Bible and raise your hand when you do. Turn with me to Acts chapter 20. I love this text has been sticking with me this, throughout this week. It's Acts 20 beginning in verse 17. And what this is, is this is obviously before what we, those scriptures that I read through Acts quickly. This is Paul. He's getting ready to be shipped off. And what he does is he gathers the elders of Ephesus. So he's speaking to the, to the leaders, to the church leaders. But I love what Paul says here in Acts 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus, they, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit Three things he says there. You yourselves know how I lived before you. Can we say that? Can we stand with confidence and say, you yourselves know? And I say that to this morning. I say that to you. You yourselves know how I've lived before you. Can we say that with confidence? From the first day. And this was before he began his real trials, right? before his shipwreck, before his imprisonment, before his beatings, or some of them at least. Here's Paul saying, you know how I've lived before you. You know how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, he says. And then lastly, he says, in all things I have shown you, in all things. And he talks about, in that text as well, the work of his hands and how his has work supported his ministry. And so there was continuity between the, the life that he lived and the hard work that he had and the testimony of Jesus Christ in his life. Paul had both a risky faith, we know that of course, but he also had a savory witness. He had a witness that was appealing he had a witness that drew people towards him that, or at the very least caused people to question and to ask. Enough so that he could write things like that. You yourselves know. I don't need to tell you. You know how I've lived. You know the tenor of my life that I've lived out among you and before you as I've testified to the gospel of Jesus Christ. His life, his actions, his reactions, his speech, his choices, his conduct, all confirmed the message that he testified to. I want to quickly just turn to two passages and then I want to get, I want to give time this morning to respond to the Lord Jesus Christ further. Colossians 4, actually you don't have to turn there, if I can turn there or you can turn there if you can get there quicker than me. Colossians 4, you can write down the text though, verse 5 through 6. This culture that we're living in that is an isolated culture because of digital modernity, is actually losing its ability to be empathetic. And empathy is what drives compassion. 
And we cannot lose touch with that in our lives. Empathy and compassion. Because that's what compels us to preach the gospel. Contentment, which I know the women here at Capital City went through um, an afternoon together. On what it is biblical contentment. Peacefulness, confidence, all of these things are earmarks in our life that we both value the testimony of Jesus Christ in us and through us, but also that, we, that the grace of God is at work to bring continuity between our words and our actions. So we pray this morning that the Lord Jesus Christ would give us the grace to do so. I want to um, just invite you to stand with me, please, at this time. I had so much more. I'm my own worst enemy. I had so much more I wanted to say. But I want to read this. Rather than just praying from my heart this morning, I want to read this, and then we're going to worship for a little bit, and um, we're going to respond in worship to the Lord. This is a prayer from the Valley of Vision, the Puritanical Book of Devotions. It says, let me not be at my own disposal. I'm going to pray this. Just receive this as a prayer, as your own personal prayer this morning. Let me not be at my own disposal, but rejoice that I am under the care of one who is too wise to err, too kind to injure, too tender to crush. May I scandalize none by my temper and conduct, but recommend and endear Christ to all around. Bestow good on everyone as circumstances permit and decline no opportunity for usefulness. Grant that I may value my substance, not as the medium of pride and luxury, but as the means of my support and stewardship. Help me to guide my affections with discretion, to owe no man anything, to be able to give to him that needeth, to feel in my duty and pleasure to be merciful and forgiving, and here's where we land, to show to the world the likeness of Jesus. That is our prayer this morning, Lord. Grant us the grace to live such a life.